Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. In 1993, artist, curator, and arts advocate Rolando Chang Barrera was told he had terminal brain cancer and there was nothing doctors could do for him. It's been 14 years since that doomsday pronouncement, and Rolando's still with us, making art, showing his work, promoting other artists, and living as an openly gay man who always assumed he would die of AIDS. To say Rolando is a survivor is an understatement. After graduating from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, he was awarded the Ryerson Traveling Fellowship. He later received a Congressional Letter of Commendation for his contributions in the advancement of the arts. Rolando is the sole proprietor and curator of no less than three galleries in Palm Beach County. He's the president of the Florida Arts Association, and the list goes on. Rolando Chang Barrero joins us today from West Palm Beach, Florida. Rolando, welcome to the HWISE podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Jana. So you were born in Coconut Grove, Florida, as I understand I it. I was. Yeah. Yes, I was. Tell back us in a, the hippie days. Back in the hippie days. So, <laughs> so I was born in Mercy Hospital, which was everything but hippie. It was a very <laughs> Catholic hospital, uh, and actually there were still nuns working there back then. Oh, wow. So tell <laughs> us about those early years after art school. What sort of art were you producing, and what was your life like? Well, art school was the late 80s. Uh, well, mid to late 80s. So a lot of things are going on in this country, and particularly in Chicago, which is where I was. And there was the burning of the flags. There was the AIDS crisis. There was the ascent of Annie Sprinkle and performance art and Mm -hmm. what it meant to be a a woman artist. Uh, We had the changing of the mayor from Harold Washington back to the Daily Machine. Right. They did a portrait of Harold Washington in lingerie. They they burned flags on the steps of the Art Institute. Hmm. Mapplethorpe passed. I mean, it was a real turbulent time in the arts, mm-hmm. and it was a wonderful time in the arts because people were were contesting and responding and reacting to everything that was around them. Mm-hmm. And I sense that that whole climate is going to be taking hold in the next couple of years, at least in the next four years, just because of the current climate that we're in now with the the doing away of the education department or in a way with the EPA and a lot of social programs. They're getting rid of meals for children in schools. So I'm I'm thinking that a lot of artists and a lot of people are going to get more vocal and more visual with their work, just like then. It's a different type of crisis, but the country's still in crisis. And, And it hadn't been for a long time. There was always issues, and they were issues that were grave concern, but not at crisis level like we're finding now. Well, let's talk about your work specifically. I read that you achieved a major success with the Pajaros paintings. Is that the right pronunciation? Yes. Talk about the, those uh, paintings. 
the the birds actually didn't, the, the birds they kind of started as paintings but not really they mm-hmm. were paintings on cut out wood and they were meant to be hung on trees and they they were epitaphs because pajarum is a derogatory for gay in Spanish language in many Latin cultures um, kind of like you would call them a fairy so what's the, the word bird. in in Spanish pajaro which uh, means bird pajaro okay yeah yeah. So while my friends were passing, I started making little eulogies uh, or epitaphs hmm. Um, hmm. for them. Many of them were, were passing unknown, and there were just numbers. So in order to spotlight the amount of people that were passing, I eventually I started documenting everybody, not just my friends, but everybody that was passing, I would make a bird. And I was hanging them all over the place. Uh, and it started getting attention, and... Then I, I had made a few paintings, uh, mostly with flags in the back of them as backgrounds. Right. Uh, the Spanish flag, the American flag, the Cuban flag, just to kind of bring attention to the, that every country uh, had gay people, first of all, and that they were dying of AIDS. So it worked at two different levels, one for visibility and one as part of a, an activist gesture to count numbers to show the immediacy of the issue mm-hmm. that needed to be taken, taken serious. Because people were kept saying, well, it started off as gay-related immune deficiency, so we didn't have to look at it because the gays, those people were immoral and they got what they deserved, and we heard it all. And what we tried to do is try to educate everybody. It's not a gay disease. Trust me, it's not a gay disease. They went so far as to really, you know, eventually outlined that the reason why the spread was so harsh on the single community and mostly the gay community was because we weren't using condoms as birth control like the straight community was because there wasn't that much pill use or IUD use. There was a lot of condom use. Mm -hmm. So it never really got past the gay community into the, the straight community at such levels. But as it developed and as you can see today with the use of other methods of birth control like the pill, the youth are equally getting infected still. Right. And it's hard to be right about something when it's, you know, you don't want to go say, you see, we were right. We just wish that it just had been taken care of before it reached the pandemic. And this was the late 80s, early 90s that this art was coming out? Yeah, a lot of it was coming out. We were putting up posters. Some of the act up posters that were generated from New York were being sent all across the country. And we were actually putting them up in the L stations. One of them got actually tarred and feathered at the time. So it wasn't it wasn't a pretty time. The president, for God's sakes, never even mentioned the word gay or AIDS yeah. for four years, way into the crisis. And we did a lot of wonderful, beautiful gestures that were left unknown because we had a lot of a lot of volunteers from both communities the straight community and the gay community that were nursing people and they they established a meals on wheels program and it was the the larger community but very specific to to certain areas it was the press and the government that was ignoring the issue right because there was a lot going on on the ground you were busy making art in south beach and you active in the south beach art scene when, as I understand it, you were blindsided by the brain tumor diagnosis. Tell us right. what happened. I, yeah, I graduated in uh, 1990, and then I went off on the traveling fellowship. I went and traveled quite a bit, and then as soon as I had my studio, I had gotten a job immediately after graduating. 
did what was Miami-Dade Community College back then. Now it's Miami-Dade College. Mm -hmm. And I became the interim galleries director. And that would entail that I had to organize three galleries within the community college system. Mm -hmm. Everything seemed to be going great. It was the early 90s. It was South Beach. I lived in Coral Gables again, and then I also maintained an apartment on South Beach. I, I worked in downtown. Uh, everything was going great. And then I decided to become a flight attendant because I got addicted to traveling <laughs> <laughs> because of the Ryerson Fellowship. And I was like, how can I make art and travel at the same time? Uh-huh. And I had the, the my little gardener's art history book, which weighs like 20 pounds. <laughs> and it was my bucket list book. I carried that book through all of college. Mm-hmm. and through all my art history classes and everything. And I had circled quite a bit of pieces that I had loved. And I was committed to going to see all of them. And when I got to work as a flight attendant, I was given that opportunity. And then one day, I just went to sleep and I woke up and it had been like two or three weeks later. They tell me that I had been conscious, but I was incoherent through that whole period kind of going in and out of consciousness and into not necessarily like a coma, but not responsive to life. And because of the size of the tumor, they thought that originally they had thought that it was a hemorrhage. Well, was there Uh, a single incident, Rolando, that occurred to trigger what sounds like a hospital stay? Yeah, no, um, I just went to sleep at my then boyfriend's house, uh, his mother's house, actually. We Mm -hmm. went to visit her, went to sleep, and I... um, I came to uh, Jackson Memorial Hospital oh like three weeks later. Oh, wow. There was a lot of not knowing and a lot of things had occurred. I thought I had just fallen asleep and woken up. So who gave you but the diagnosis? They finally did some further testing. Once they, they got me out of the Amarillo Hospital where they said that I had had a hemorrhage, they airlifted me, I guess, or put me on a plane to Miami, and then they tracked down my family. Where were they? And they were in Miami, and okay. that's why they, they took me over there. Mm-hmm. And they put me in Jackson Memorial Hospital, which is where the Sylvester Cancer Center mm-hmm. uh, and some of the doctors, Howard Landy and Lynn Fon, which was the oncology department, had diagnosed me. And I came to, and the first thing they kind of said was like, well, you need to be operated on, and we're going to do this, but you probably end up, if you survive the operation, which is a very delicate operation, you're going to more than likely have quite a bit of deficits. And I'm like, what do you mean by deficit? <laughs> Why am I being operated? What do I have? Because, well, you have an anaplastic astrocytoma and an oligodendroglioma. And I was like, what is that? He was very scientific about his conversation with me. And he told me, you have cancer. The first thing that came out of my mouth is like, fantastic. Everybody dies of AIDS. I get a straight disease. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy looked at me, he goes, are you stupid? <laughs> you know, like, it, it really just came out of his mouth. He, he was, like, so stunned that I would even say something like that. Huh. But I didn't know of any other gay person who was dealing with brain cancer, uh, and mostly in my age bracket. I was in my 30s. And as it turns out, very few, if any, people really get the type of cancer that I got in that age bracket. It's usually at the onset of puberty or towards the end of one's life. Then he told me the size of it, and I was like, I don't understand what you're talking about. How big was it? What did he say? It was about the size of a small squash. Oh, my goodness. And I looked at him, and I was like, 
so it's been eating my brain because I didn't know what it was. And he looks at me and he goes, you are stupid. <laughs> well, you must have been really scared, though. I was like, no, I'm not. I'm an artist. And now you have a very happy life. But it, it became very serious. And I think I did go through that whole denial thing. And I tried making a joke out of everything in the beginning. Then I just I really got into a serious depression. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of what was told to me hurt quite a bit. I had no spiritual connection to speak of. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had raised, raised Catholic and went to Catholic school and stuff, but I really didn't live with that religious connection at mm -hmm. all or some kind of spiritual connection. Whatever door my smile would open, I knew that I would have to work at trying to keep in there. But I knew that the smile was what got me in through most doors. And all of a sudden I wake up and I'm huge, bloated, about 100 pounds overweight. Wow. I have three staples on my head, dark circles, and just clumps of hair. And I was grotesque. I was ugly, completely rearranged. And people would come in and they would say, you're doing great. At least bald is fashionable. Or you're not that fat. I don't see what you're concerned about. All that weight you'll lose later. Um, people huh. tend to not know what to say to you, so they bring up the obvious. I'm mm -hmm. bald. I was hugely uh, overweight. Well, did you go through and the operation straight away? What yeah. happened? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you in did. June, okay. I went through the operation, and it was three different people went through the operation, and one ended up a vegetable. The other one died immediately on the table. And the other one ended up a vegetable and eventually died. So we were keeping track of it because it was kind of like a dream team of people that were in the surgery room mm -hmm. between the oncologist, the surgeons, the cordial mapping guy, the anesthesiologist. They were all top-notch people. So it was since they had gathered everybody, they were going to do these three surgeries at the same time. Not at the same time, but in the same period. Right. And you were the fourth? I was the first one, I think. I was the first one to be operated on. And I was aware that there was two other people that were getting operated on. And as soon as I came to, I asked about them. Mm -hmm. and they told me that one had died, which did nothing for me. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and that the other one was very critical. And when I went to see them, he, he was basically uh, vegetable. And he had died. Oh, and then sad. they tried to connect me with other people my age or younger and carried on a conversation with them. And eventually they passed also. So it didn't seem very hopeful that I would recover. Did you have any support around um, you? Were your family involved? My family did the best that they could. They were very supportive, mm -hmm. but everybody was scared. Everybody yeah. in the family was scared. And, and it was tough for everybody. I had somewhat been disenfranchised, had moved away, and I was living my own life. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, I came back into their life, riddled with cancer and all these medical problems and stuff like that. So it had to be very, very challenging for them. Mm-hmm. How many siblings do you um, have? I, I have a little sister uh -huh. who's older. Okay. And a big brother who's younger. Uh, That's such a creative middle, way middle. to answer that question, of course, because you're an artist. <laughs> Give us the birth <laughs> order, Rolando. My sister's first. And she's the shortest of the family. So okay. That's why she's the little sister. Uh, she was born in 1960. I was born in 62. And my brother was born in 1970. So he was truly the baby of the family. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so you're one of three. Are your parents still alive? Yes, they are. Okay. And my grandmother just recently passed a couple of years ago at a very ripe 
centurion age. <laughs> she wow. lived a long, full life. My father and my mother are, I think they're 80 already, something like that. Mm-hmm. Nobody in my family really talks about age. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, that's, that's probably <laughs> we good. Long, Health is more important time. than age, and you can be unhealthy at any age, right? Yeah. So how did your uh-huh. life change after the operation? Well, the thing is that I, I felt useless. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that I consciously decided to do this, but I threw myself a pity party. I felt sorry for myself. I hated the world. I hated everybody. I went through one of uh, Kubler-Ross's angry stages and never really got past that stage. I stayed angry. And a lot of people allowed me to stay angry because the poor guy is going to die of cancer. Hmm. And I went on a downward spiral, a real serious downward spiral, where the switching of the medications and then came medication abuse and then finding medications that would make me feel good and abusing those, eventually becoming a full-blown addict. Hmm. And when the pills and the drugs wouldn't work, I would just heighten them with a lot of alcohol so that I wouldn't feel, because if I was conscious, I was dreading life. Mm. And I was constantly thinking, you know, today's going to be the last day that I live and I don't have the energy or the desire to do anything. So I'm just sitting around waiting to die. Oh, gosh. I would go in and out of serious, severe depressions, get put on medications. I went through a series of suicide attempts. I would have bouts with catatonia. Then I would get put back in the hospital and deal with those medications. It went on for a long, long time. How long are we talking about? About 10 years. I've only recently been back on my feet for maybe eight years. And six years ago, I came back to work. Wow. I decided that based on the evidence, I was not going to die anytime soon. Uh (laughs) So you woke up to that. (laughs) Finally, 10 years into the whole waiting to die thing, I I realized. Well, was the evidence always there and you just didn't see it? Or is that when you woke up to the evidence? I have no idea whether it was mental, psychological, or drug-related. The only thing, I, I was not able to see any value in living. Oh, And I had a friend that really shocked me because she was the first person that didn't co-sign my pity party. Um, (laughs) She didn't co-sign your pity party? That's great. No, she didn't co-sign it. She goes, well, you're not dying. So why are you killing yourself? Um, Don't you think you should leave that alone already and, you know, like do something (laughs) with your life? And I was like, how dare you talk to me like that? (laughs) (laughs) And that comes with caretaking because now I work as a a sponsor for a lot of people and I work in therapy also doing art therapy and stuff. And you got to be real careful. If you suffer from any semblance of codependency because you could very easily fall into that trap of co-signing people or rationalizing their behavior and stunting their growth. And she was not about to let me go. She wasn't going to let it go that easy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Kind of some tough love there. So was she a caregiver for you of sorts? She was a good friend. Okay. She wasn't a caregiver. She was just a good friend. And she whipped me verbally. And I just looked at her and I was like, how dare you? And as soon as she left, I was like, oh, my God, she's got a point. Everybody else was angry with me. Mm -hmm but they never really challenged me. That's so interesting. 
I mean, let's be honest. I think a lot of us, myself included, we don't know how to respond. We don't know the healthy way to respond. And I, and I think I, I was so threatening and abusive in my responses to people in, in early days mm-hmm. that they didn't really want to help me, mm-hmm. you know, because I would just rebuke it. Right. You were a tough customer. Um, yeah. I instilled a lot of that disdain for support by abusing him. Because uh-huh. people did try to help me, honestly tried to help me in the beginning. They weren't direct. Uh-huh. And they didn't challenge my ego. They didn't tell me things like, you're not about to die. Get rid of that myth. Or at least you could do something, you know, instead of just sit there. I was very comfortable just feeling sorry for myself. And it got to be a way of life in a trap between the depression, the catatonia, the bad attitude. I didn't know how to live unless I was doing what I had been doing, and I didn't know how to do anything else. So how did it, you turn and yourself around then? I don't know. I got angry at her, and I was like, well, you're right. And then I got angry at her for saying that, and it made me get angry with myself that I had wasted so much time. So I got myself into a detox program, Mm -hmm. got all the medication taken out of me, got an oncologist and a doctor to relook at all my medications to see what the most minimum amount of medication that I could be put on. They put me on uh, on a certain dosage of carimazepine, which is is an anticonvulsant. And I told them that I was going to cut it down to the point where I would allow myself to go through life with focal seizures, which I do. You know, Mm -hmm. I have little tremors and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. but enough to stabilize myself from having grand mal seizures because I needed to be able to function and drive and do everything. But I couldn't be on the dosages. I mean, I had been on so many high dosages of things that I, I was basically unable to do anything except feel sorry for myself. It's amazing that you really survived, given the situation. Um, I I don't mean to make light of it. You must have a really strong constitution. I was young. Most of my organs are removed. My gallbladder, my spleen, my this, my that, my appendix. Okay. So I I guess the few organs that I have left, which are pretty much the vital organs, are pretty strong. (laughs) Apparently so. (laughs) All the weaker organs are gone. Uh Uh-huh. But it changed my life. I was about focusing and making money and the career and traveling and making sure that I had enough experience in my life, being really worldly, making sure I didn't miss a circuit party. I I bounced from the black and blue party to the white party to this party to that party. And now my focus is, what am I going to leave behind? What kind of legacy? What kind of an example can I leave behind that would define not only me, but that would help somebody else define themselves. Hmm. I don't believe in limitations anymore because of how I work and how I function. And I know that not too many people could function at the same level that I do because one of my side effects of the surgery is that I'm an insomniac. So I basically sleep two and a half, three hours a day. Oh my gosh. I have to rest. I rest for another three or four hours, but the rest of the time I'm in high gear working. Oh my gosh. Well, take Um, us through a typical day. I start getting restless about three o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. I stay in bed till about 4.30. I start stirring. Then I get up about 4.30, take a shower, feed the dogs, feed the cat. Then by 6.30, I am at an AA meeting. Uh, Meeting goes from seven to eight o'clock. I then start my day at the gallery. I go back into the back of my studio, paint uh, until about 10.30, then wash up, 
open the door to the gallery, stay here until 6 o'clock p.m. Then I go I go home, have something to eat. I either work with sponsees or I go to an opening, a show, uh, some kind of social function. I have social function almost every night to go to. Then I get home probably around 9.30, 10 o'clock, catch up on the, the news, go through everything, and then turn on Netflix for white noise. And hopefully by 1.30 or 2, I fade out for a little bit. Oh, my gosh. But then you're back up again at, what, 3 o'clock? Every day. How do you <laughs> – wow. So do you drink a lot of coffee? How do you, how do you keep it going? I, 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 I drink a lot of coffee. I smoke a lot of cigarettes, mm-hmm. um, which are counterproductive. But some days I get eight hours of sleep, but it's atypical. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't fight it. I used to stay in bed and, and take sleeping pills and uh, Xanax mm-hmm. and Valiums and stuff like that. But all that went on the wayside over six years ago. Mm-hmm. And Do you feel better? So, yeah, no, I feel much better. And I, and I, get, to, I get to work. Mm-hmm. When I figured out that at least I'd have the upper hand on the rest of the world, then I, just, <laughs> I, you know, I figured out that I... I, I talk to other people that are high achievers and they like, oh yeah we don't sleep either <laughs> so i was like okay so that's the secret um, that most people have that, that are well high, you know that's a fallacy i'm not going to allow you to promote that i mean <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, there are very few people who can function on as little sleep as you get i mean that's the reality <laughs> so let's let's just quash that but myth I, rest. Right now. I, I do rest but okay I don't want people to think that not sleeping doesn't mean not resting. I do have to rest at least four to six hours of rest mm-hmm. every day. And do you get regular but, checkups for the tumor? Have you had any recent scares or anything? Yes, I uh, I, I have. And I go, uh, now I go for complete workups uh, mm-hmm. every two years. Okay. Uh, and they... They, you know, it's, I'm also getting old, you know, so you, you go in for all your other checkups and they mm-hmm. find out that you have little polyps here and a little growth there. And I keep it to myself because I don't want my family to go crazy. Mm-hmm. How old are you now? Because I'm 54. Okay. And they're all very, very concerned. We've gotten very, very close. And, you know, my parents are old, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word, they're old. And the roles are going to be changing. And uh, me and my sister and my brother are going to have to be there for them mm-hmm. and take care of them. So a lot of the, my concern right now is how am I placing myself so that I, I am available to, mm-hmm. to be of service to them like they, they were able to be for me. And but my brother has three little girls. So his time is pretty limited. Mm-hmm. So it's going to end up pretty much falling on, on me and my sister and my brother-in-law. You know, we get we get to step up and we get to comfort them the same way that they comforted us. And we're Cuban, so we, we look forward to doing that. We, it's not like, you know, I, I know in some cultures they immediately, you know, like, oh, okay, well, we'll put them in a resting home or, or something. And there's nothing wrong with that. But Cubans always move the parents inside the house. Yeah. <laughs> we put my grandmother in a nursing home when nobody could actually take care of her. She would she would get up. She was in full Alzheimer's. If you didn't have constant eye contact with her, she would leave or do things. 
and we didn't want to have to have her suffer and have her locked in a room or yeah. anything like that. But Are my, your parents in Miami? My father, yeah, and when my grandmother ended up in the nursing home, my father had a full-time nursemaid there with her. My sister went regularly. I visited at least, you know, once, twice a a month. I, I, mm-hmm. I live in West Palm. They were all the way in Miami. Mm-hmm. My brother would go visit her. My father would go every day. She wasn't lucid for like maybe 10, 15 years, but we were constantly visiting her, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, and bringing her out for all the dinners, all the special events. She was still part of the family. She really w- didn't understand what was going on, but she ended up joyously at about 17 years old. She uh-huh. regressed mentally to about 17 years old Mm -hmm. and what we had to get accustomed to is speaking to her as if she was 17 and carrying on the conversation she would call me by by a different name and it was okay and i think that it's the understanding that that happens Mm -hmm. that that a lot of people get frustrated with no no and they keep correcting the person and it's like they don't have the capacity to understand your correction let them <laughs> let them be happy right what and, is you know, to be gained by constant yeah, correction and, and it's a natural it's natural what my father was very careful of and, and i think we all need to be very careful mm-hmm. is that as they get older and as she got older that you treat them with dignity you know if she drools you clean it up and, and, it, and it's it is Weird. We we made sure that she had her hair done. We made sure yeah. she was dressed nicely. That's awesome. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And you know that's that's what she did for all of us, and and that's what my parents did for us. Uh huh. You know, they didn't leave us in diapers running around naked and on the street. You know, uh-huh. and I guess some kids grow up like that, and that's probably how they will eventually treat their their parents. Mm-hmm. probably leave him running around in the hospital gown uh, mm-hmm. throughout the house or any, but we were not raised that way. So that whether it's cultural or sensitive or insensitive, it's just different to how we treat our elderly. Mm-hmm. How and, Do your parents have any health problems now that you're dealing with or you're worried about? No, they're pretty solid. I mean, they're, they're old. They, they have mm-hmm. their diabetes problem. They have their, all these little issues, but everything is very much controlled and minimal. Uh-huh. There's been no no heart attack, no heart surgeries, no liver transplants, no major hip replacement. Wow, they're lucky. You know what I'm saying? And they're in their 80s? They're, yeah, and they're, they're pretty solid people. Are they still living in the house you grew up in? My mother is. They're separated, separated for a number of years, mm-hmm. but they're still together for all family functions. They're mm-hmm. both there together. We have a very large extended family, and we're all very, very close. That's great. So listen, I have another topic for you. Okay. Okay. So when we met, we joked about the upside of being single and how, <laughs> how, how that conducive that was to creativity. So why do you think being single gets a bad rap in this country? I think because people are needy. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Everybody, well, you're raised in a culture where we kind of gear everything around. Are you going to have your first boyfriend, your first girlfriend? You're going to get engaged. You're going to get married. So if you kind of overlook all those rites of passage or you don't, you go through them and then you figure out that it's not really for you. I mean, I would love, I have a whole bunch of experiences that I sometimes I, I feel like I would love to share it with somebody. Mm-hmm. or to share life with, but 
as soon as I get into a relationship, I, I feel very trapped and very uncomfortable. I don't mind dating somebody from a distance, you know, that doesn't live with me. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> very comfortably in their home and me in my home. But I think it's a very personal choice. And yeah. I don't criticize my friends for wanting to get married. And I've never understood why, why that whole concentration on matching everybody up. I mean, and, and I, I sort of get it, but I'm really difficult to get along with. <laughs> I'm pretty set in my way. <laughs> it happens and, as you get older. older you get, I think the more set you are in your way, uh-huh. you know? Uh-huh. Well, you know, there's really nothing wrong to being, to being single. I'm single. I have no problem with it. My, only, my main concern is, okay, so how do I align my life so that as I continue to age, what does it look like? Especially because my mom is nearby and she's 87 and so... I don't expect to age literally the same way she is or has, but I'm learning some lessons from her in what I want my 80s to look like. And who's going to take care of me because I don't have kids. I mean, do you worry about that when you get older? I always worry about that. You know, when I, when I bought my home, mm-hmm. I made sure that it was small enough that I would be able to manage it. I fell down one day. I fell down in my kitchen and my phone flew out of my hand. I had my phone in my hand and I was walking in the kitchen and the dog was sleeping uh, like across the middle of the kitchen and I tripped over him and I fell. And I guess I let out a yell or something and my phone went flying and then the dog ran under the bed and hit. (laughs) 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 So I'm sitting there incapacitated on the floor in my house by myself. And it was scary. And that was the first reality that I need to get like an alarm that that responds to vocal crisis. The whole little button thing right. is not out of the question. Personal alarm buttons that you keep around your neck. And yeah, I've become that person that's considering buying one. Well, you would undoubtedly uh, design it with some creative flourishes. <laughs> I would make it one of those daisies that squirt water also. <laughs> to, to double duty, so when my friends laugh at it, I could just squirt water out of it. Take a good look at it. and they get close, it squirts back. <laughs> But no, you got to take it with a grain of salt. You know, we live in a modern age uh, where almost everything is accessible and everything is at your fingertips. The thing is to age gracefully. I never went, we we never discussed our private hygiene things in my house. We never talked about our hospital stays or our illnesses and stuff like that. And I don't think that I will ever do that either as Mm -hmm. I get older. Mm -hmm. Because it's just not part of our, like nobody cares. It's just normal. What's the hardest part for you about getting older, and what's the best part? Not having the necessary money for preventive care. For preventive care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Once I get something, I don't care. But, you know, like the whole dental thing, I have a whole bunch of things. that Because I have to be at work, if I'm at work, I don't have the time to go and get the preventive care that I need mm-hmm. uh, or the maintenance, you know, like the old changes. And it's expensive. You right. know, and I, I have my own business, so I don't have insurance. I had insurance. I had uh, Medicaid and Medicare at one point, and I ended up with Medicaid only uh, because I went back to work. And then somebody convinced me to join Obamacare. And when you sign up for Obamacare, they cancel your Medicaid because Obamacare covers it. And then Obamacare ended up costing me like $600 instead of the Thirty or something that, that they said it meet in first because they said that I had Medicaid. 
Blue Cross Blue Shields cross wires messed up my whole thing. And then they sent me into collections because I couldn't afford the $600 that they wanted. Well, you were, it was more cost effective uh, for you to be on Medicaid, wasn't it? Yeah but, yeah, but I was convinced to get it, and now I can't get Medicaid because I'm registered as on Obamacare. Yeah. Well, what's the best part about getting older? <laughs> Just knowing a little bit more, having more insight on things, being more mindful than a lot of uh, the youth. You know, like I've just, I discovered the sound of waves. I've discovered the birds in the morning. You know, mm-hmm. I, I live very present now mm-hmm. um, because I guess the immediate surface things, I really went through all of that, studying who the better designers are, who the better artist is, who the critics are, who the writers are, what's the best TV, what's the best movie. All that consumed a lot of my attention that I never really noticed the subtle things in life, like a bird, a nest, birds chirping, and now I have bees growing. I, I never knew what a sound of things are, mm-hmm. you know. I'm very much in tune with everything that's around me. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful thing to get to that point. And, you know, and, it, and it starts making sense. Irma Bombeck, uh, oh God, I can't believe I'm saying this in public. <laughs> Irma Bombeck starts making really a lot of sense. Uh-huh. That everything you ever looked for was in your backyard. <laughs> <laughs> so what sort of advice on aging would you give to young people? Treat your elders kindly. Treat your elders kindly. They're plethora of information we have a lot to share well, we're not a senior citizen i mean we're in our 50s we're not seniors yet although we're inching up there i got my aarp card i got my me AARP too card. me using, too i've been using it for four years <laughs> my friend goes like oh my god you really you really do whip out that card don't Why you not? I was like, I, it took me a long time to get it <laughs> I'm just so impressed that you battled through cancer, and I mean, you're making great art, and I know that you really engage with the community, you engage with young artists, and your work also includes transgender youth. Tell us a little bit about that. The 12 Steps of Recovery uh, really impacted me when I first was exposed to AA and recovery and everything, and I started a program called Creative Steps, which is an introduction to the 12 steps through the art making process. I just used to do it at my studio with a whole bunch of other artists that were struggling through a variety of different addictions, and it was a bonding experience. But eventually, I was, it was repeated somewhere else that I was doing this, and I was invited to present the program at a couple of different treatment centers. One of them is a transgender treatment center. And I see the struggles that these young men and women are going through. And it's very reminiscent of when I was a young gay man, you know, Mm -hmm. because today we take it for granted that gay has been a household word, lesbian is a household word. We have gay marriages, we have unity, same-sex marriage and all this stuff. And transgender youth has very specific concerns that are not being met. Even seat assignment for going to the bathroom. You not they feel threatened going to one bathroom and they get kicked out of another bathroom when they need to go to the bathroom. And the political climate now is making it okay to chastise them. And it's not okay. We need to really be sensitive about the language that we use and it was a learning curve for me because I grew up using the word tranny in the gay bars and going, Oh girl, you know, and all mm-hmm. this stuff. And it brings me back to when they, they would say in Spanish, Oye, gordito, they use the diminutive of chubby, you know, or you're so cute, baldy. And they didn't realize that I was recovering from brain surgery and that I was fat and I was very self-conscious of it, that I was bald 
and I had a big scar on my head. I was just really tall and you can't see it. But when you call somebody by a name that you think is okay or by a gender or a pronoun that is not particular to that person, it really hurts. And you're putting the onus on a child to educate the government. And that's a lot of pressure. The young man that, that, that this whole commotion is about, you know, came out and said, all I wanted to do was go to the bathroom. That statement just broke my heart. I was like, could you imagine that? I don't think I ever felt that moved. I mean, I, I can only identify with, with, with maybe a, an African-American child wanting to have gone to the bathroom in the 40s and 50s. This is where older adults need to be sensible. You know, part of aging well is recognizing that there's more than one way to do things and there's a lot to be learned as we age. So let's pass on some of those lessons. And it's up to us as the adults in the room to craft policies that leave everyone's dignity intact and respect people. Mm -hmm. Well, we go back to the whole thing. Let's, Let's all allow other people to live in dignity also. Amen. Where can people go to learn more about your work? Well, I'm having a show at Harold in Northwood Village that opens up on St. Patrick's Day, March 17th. I also have my gallery right next to Roosters, the oldest gay bar in South Florida, I think, actually. Mm, and we're uh, in West Palm Beach. Belvedere. All of these are in the West Palm Beach area, if folks are in the West Palm Beach area. But what about online? Uh-huh. Online at www.theboxgallery.info. Theboxgallery.info. Okay. Are there any closing thoughts that you would like to offer? My life became easier when I stopped reviewing it as good and bad, right and wrong. Basically, I just look at my day as what can I bring to it. If you concentrate more on bringing something to the world, you you end up with much more. It took me a, a serious bottom to restructure my life into one that I really enjoy living. Well, good for you. Welcome back. Artist, curator, and arts advocate, Rolando Chang Barrero. He lives in West Palm Beach, in the West Palm Beach, Florida area, and we'll have lots of links on the AgeWise website to Rolando's work, including his upcoming show in Northwood on March 17, if you happen to be in the West Palm Beach area. Rolando, thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate your honesty and sharing your story. Thanks so much. Okay, sweetheart. God bless you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. In the meantime, if you like this show, please tell your friends and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. Rate us. The AgeWise Podcast is produced by me, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand network that's always on for you. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours. Dicen que el coco es muy bueno guisao, en especia fina guisao, en especia fina. Dicen que el coco es muy bueno. Dicen que el coco es muy bueno guisado en especies finas, guisado en especies finas.